Hello and welcome to Commodity Conversations by Mercado, the podcast where we aim to cut the noise out of market information to tell you what you really need to know about Australia's key agricultural markets. My name is Olivia Agar and thanks for joining us again for today's episode, which is all about emissions targets in agricultural supply chains, touching on not just what it means for securing market access, but also to consumers that are buying our product. And to bring some sense to it all, I have David Cornish with me today. He's the Director of Agribusiness at Marcus Oldham Agricultural College and host of their own podcast, Ag Talk. And he does a fabulous job of bringing some perspective to this discussion today. As a bit of background in today's talk, the red meat industry in Australia has already made some great progress towards these green targets. Emissions are down 57% since 2005. And when you look at the research here and overseas, it's a lot of Australian farms that are actually leading the way in practices to get to things like carbon neutrality and improving environmental stewardship. So we're going to learn a lot about it today and I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get underway with David. Well, it's great to have you join us this week, David, a very experienced podcaster yourself. And we know our listeners always enjoy the episodes where you come on. But today, what I'm hoping to talk about is emissions targets in agriculture. So particularly red meat industry. So we've got that carbon neutral 2030 target and it's something that's getting plenty of discussion at the moment and could have pretty big impacts on agricultural markets and the way that we manage farm businesses in the future right David? Yeah well Olivia thank you for having us and I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk um yeah we'll we'll go through that I think what 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 I like to do in these circumstances is to try and look at what's been said in the public and trying to understand what that means to me as a farmer or a, a lecturer at Marcus Oldham and then look at what the facts are telling us. And, and, and as you appreciate, what we often see in public press doesn't always match with what's happening in, in, in the actual reality and, and how consumers actually make choices regarding what they do and what they don't, don't do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, plenty of discussion at the moment. So let's talk a bit through that, David. What is being set out there and, and how is that different from the research? Yeah, and again, so there's obviously this, this desire for Australian agriculture to be carbon neutral. Now, there's interesting, we can talk about carbon neutral and climate neutral. And and, and again, if, if, if you are interested in that stuff, there's a guy called Frank Metlina from uh, University of California, I think, Southern California, I think he's done some really interesting stuff about um, the the effects that cattle actually have on environment. But l- let's leave that to one side. The reality is, is the question is what we've seen today discuss is whether agriculture should be part of the carbon trading, or, um, carbon measurement or whatever you want to call it in some shape, form or manner, or should we be sitting outside that? What was fascinating, I think, from the debating side of it was that we were seeing that was being that we should not be part of it is being actually led by, I suppose, from one of the National Party. But when you actually look at the farmer bodies, such as the NFF and Ag Force in Queensland, they were saying, no, actually, we want to be a part of this. We, we, we've got a, an important part to play in this whole this game, and we actually think it's really. Uh, really important for farmers to actually step up and, and be engaged in this. Then you look at what the MLA is, is done, is, is said, 
well, we've set a target for carbon neutral by 2030. And I think what we've got to understand, that that's sort of at the government level. But what we also need to understand is what's happening at the industry level. In other words, what are suppliers or retailers or are saying? And, and what, what I've already been involved in is a couple of accreditation processes whereby large corporations are coming back through the supply chain and saying, if you want to actually supply to us, we need to be able to show to our consumers that we're, we're, we're carbon neutral. Therefore, we expect our suppliers to do that. So I'd probably say to them nicely, hopefully, to the National Party is that the horse has already bolted on this one, guys. You know, we have to be a part of this because society has already decided that we are part of the, we are part of the problem. But more importantly, I think we can actually be part of the solution. I think there are actually some some significant benefits to agriculture about being involved and engaged in the whole part. And I'll just finish off by saying one of the one of the interesting things that if you look at history is that we actually weren't a part of Kyoto. Okay, so agriculture was carved out and wasn't part of those discussions. That had a, actually a huge detrimental impact, especially uh, farmers in Queensland, where the government and I've got to be careful what I say here, but the government was able to use property rights that were the own that were you could argue were owned by the farmers to offset their carbon requirements and not pay the farmers anything. So by stepping in, by being not part of that discussions and not being involved in the in the mechanisms, farmers lost millions of dollars. That that that's the simple fact. You know, we could have been part of that. We could have been made uh, engaged in that. So. I think, and this is where I think you're seeing especially AgForce and NFF coming from, they don't want to see a repeat of that. Um, they don't want to see farmers left on the, on the shelf and not being engaged in, in the process that, that's going to affect how we go forward and our, and our long-term financial viability and property rights. And so what I'm hearing there, David, it's, it's sort of multi-level from where we're seeing these um, impacts and these discussions happen. It's it's the big multinationals that are going to be, you know, putting pressure on our supply chains to have these sorts of targets. I mean, they've all got their sustainability reports and their own targets that they're going to have to be reporting on, um, which is going to, you know, be sourcing product as part of that. And we're going to see uh, changes come into businesses in Australia from that point. And then there's also the government and sort of high level industry point where we might be seeing um, being left behind in, in trade talks and those sort of market access areas if we're not setting these sorts of targets. Yeah, and I think we've got to be careful. And again, it's interesting if we look at it from, let's split those up a bit. Let's look at the, the market situation. And I think one of the things we've got to be very careful of is is understanding what why consumers purchase meat and, and what drives meat consumption or what drives one of the things we could flip that on and say what drives veganism or vegetarianism for instance so we're often seeing headlines the world's going vegan or vegetarian and, and, and you know we're seeing these impossible burgers you know growth rates six hundred percent you know well that's that's great you know you go from selling one burger to six burgers well that's a six hundred percent increase well you know in the scheme of things it's actually quite irrelevant the, the level of growth what the research shows and I, I got hold of a mega study that oh, sorry I should say meta study that was done in 2019 of all the survey survey work that was done on why consumers uh, turn vegan or vegetarianism uh, over the last 
20, 30 years. It was written by an environmental group. So let's just say some of the text and tenure was not positive towards the, the, the industry. So given that, what was quite clear and what they're saying is that in, in the list of reasons why people go vegan or vegetarianism, environmental impact is significantly down the list. The two critical issues of why people go vegan or vegetarian is either from a health perspective or from an animal welfare perspective. So I suppose what I want to say that is we can focus on climate as a, as a market asset issues, absolutely. But for consumers, we can't not as an industry focus on those two things. They're the critical things that I think that, that lobby groups or MLA need to be actually, and farmers need to be actually on the front foot about because they're the things that are actually having probably a greater effect on, on um, consumers' purchase of the product than actual uh, environmental impacts. And again, that was across, I think, 30 surveys across, uh, across the world. Now, having said that, there are sub-segments. And what was quite clear across the globe was it was young females did rate environmental impacts higher than, than any other cohort across, across the world. But having said that, even in that, there was a sort of insignificance. So this, if you talk about a 5% vegan slash vegetarian um, population, that's been pretty steady for a long time. The, the factors that they're saying that are influencing that changes are say those two, it's not the environment. Now, what we also got to be careful of is that therefore we say, we don't say that the environment is not important in, in the consumer's purchasing behaviours. In our market, which is, let's say, 85%, there is a greater understanding or greater concern about livestock's impact on the environment. And this is where these sort of meat-free Monday, so it's, it's this flexitarian approach. So people are saying, I'm going to actually reduce my consumption of meat because of climate concerns, okay? So that's probably where it's having greater influence. Now, from a purely business perspective, uh, and you think about this as debits and credits, so uh, the, is the amount of meat reduction by those people greater than, the, than, than what we're seeing in the Asian countries of the increased consumption of meat? Well, it's chalk and cheese. It's almost irrelevant compared to the increase in meat production. So I would argue from a consumer's perspective that it's not going to have a significant impact on meat consumption because 75% of our meat is, is exported overseas to the US and Asia to countries where the surveys are saying environment impacts isn't significant in their purchasing decision. A whole lot of other reasons we're going to be concerned about, that's one. It's a really good point, David, and good to have that perspective on, you know, how it actually plays into our consumption and purchasing decisions. But that being said, there is still the possibility that has issues for things like your social license. And we've spoken a bit about that to you before. And yeah, what's your take on that? From a consumer's perspective, now let's talk about the ability for the Australian producer to go on producing what they want. That's not going to be decided by what the overseas consumer wants. That's going to be decided at the elections at the box. Now, I think people forget that at the last election, the Labor government had as a policy, uh, if they'd got in, that um, live exports would be banned. So let's not 
underplay the impact or the social license requirements that we need as producers to continue to, to play in the space. Now, again, that doesn't really surprise us with regards to what the survey information is saying about you know, animal welfare is a significant issue and it is growing. Now, what the MLA research also shows on the other side is that as long as we're showing that we're actually trying to improve what we're doing and we're, we're meeting largely social socials expectations to change in a way that's seen as positive for animal welfare, then the 85% that is really our audience are quite comfortable with that. But if we sort of say no nah, to what the 85% want, then the 85% are going to say, well, stuff you, okay? And we've seen that in the past. And again, the live, live export industry is so lucky that they've still had that ability to, to export. And, and they've got to keep on working. I, I've been really interesting, especially on social media. They've been much more proactive about, about showing uh, the, the, the animal welfare issues that they're dealing with and, and, and some of the really good work they're doing. We can't take that for granted. Um, so on the environmental aspect, absolutely. Because, again, the reality is is that Australian livestock, uh, again, based on, based on all the data I can say, contributes something like 0.1%, 0.1% of greenhouse gases per annum, okay? So we could be carbon neutral tomorrow, and the impact it would have on climate change would be zero, okay? So I do sometimes get frustrated when people say, we've got to do this for climate change. No, we've got to do this because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, as a producer, want to do this because I know from a values perspective is that I want, again, I want my children to have a farm and operation that, it has, that is better off, and that's both from a financial but also environmental aspect than it was when I took it on. So I think we've got to really understand those those factors um, that are around it. And that if we are, again, if we're going to defend our social life as producers, we have to show that we're doing this. Uh, We can't ignore it, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And now you get to talk about these things with the next generation of farm managers and leaders and that are coming through the doors at Marcus Oldham. So how are they approaching things like carbon neutrality? Are they excited? Are they nervous about these sorts of discussions at home and targets? Because it can be quite divisive as we know. Oh, absolutely. And one of the interesting things I do with, with, with students, and, and it's fascinating when you have a group of people together, is I actually get them to stand, stand in a room in a line. And at I, I, and, and one end of the line, I say, if you 100% believe in climate science, that the climate is changing, I want you to stand up here. And down the other end, if you think it's all a myth, it's all, it's all a conspiracy theory, stand out there. And if you have an opinion that fits somewhere between the two, think about where you want to stand within that group, okay? So the interesting thing is that over the time still that we, I, I wouldn't say that there, certainly there is a, you'll get one or two who'll stay, it's all a, all a myth. And sometimes I think that's peer driven. They just want to do that to, you know, uh, because, you know, that's what they like to do. And you'll have one or two who will believe, but the, the, there's a there's a rump that sits somewhere in the middle. I would say uh, to to the climate 
science, and I think that's moving slowly that way. But you're right. This is not a – now, even the science is still being questioned. And, again, I, I'm not there to say that's right or wrong. I, I happen to believe in the science just as I believe in the science around GMOs, and that's very interesting what I then do them to do exactly the same with GMOs or about is, is, is Roundup safe? Do you believe the science on that? And 100% they go and you know, almost stand up and say, yeah, the science is all good. So the interesting thing is, is the values and beliefs that come into play that says we're going to believe the science here, but we're not going to believe the science there. So again, that's just a, a sidetrack, but it's fascinating when you're having those discussions to understand it's not facts that drives this, it's values and beliefs that drives people's opinions. And one of the things that, again, Kevin Falter, who, who's a really interesting guy from uh, uh, professor said, you know, that the thing is, if we are going to engage in these discussions, don't be scientists, engage on facts. You know, you've got to find, you know, you've got to talk about these opinions and things. So how do you engage the students in it? Well, the interesting thing I would argue is that the students are very interested in this stuff, okay? Whether they believe in it or not, they are interested in understanding it. So we actually did an assignment last year, a case study, where they, where, uh, they looked at their own properties and, 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 and measured the... Um, decide okay is it what's the what's the basically the financial outcomes or effect of going carbon neutral so there's calculators around we got people in to talk to them about what you need to do and it was actually really interesting process to go through a from my own perspective for those who didn't have a farm they actually used our property so it gave me some free consulting on this but what was fascinating from a perspective was what they learned was so far, the hard part is probably the administration or the actual regulatory spirit around this and the ability to actually sell carbon into the market. A, that it's expensive, and B, it's very, uh, just for um, auditory perspective, and then, it's, and then as a farmer, if you want to do this, it's, again, very difficult unless you have significant scale because you then got to go into a, an accumulator or a, um, a facilitator and, and there's a large wedge that goes through and B at $15 a tonne for carbon you're not going to make much money and then you know the internal rate of returns and net present values are doing are all coming out at negatives given you know a 5% hurdle rate. Having said that you then look at people such as Jigsaw Farms for instance um, Mark Wooden um, who is running a very successful highly profitable highly productive operation and is also carbon neutral okay so he would argue you, you, you've got to look at this not only from the direct benefits and he you know, uses forestry, but he also looks at it from the co-benefits. So what does it mean to improving his productivity? What does it mean from a biodiversity, social norms, all those other things? And, and I think this is where the discussion gets really interesting is when we start looking at the co-benefits and how we actually monetize those. So, and there's a lot of work going on at the moment, how we're actually going to add value to that. So... I think what was really good for the students and I think was that most of the students didn't walk away and go, oh, this is all bullshit, you know, uh, it's all crap. In fact, most of them were engaged in saying, okay, what does that mean to my farm? How can I actually maximise the benefit of this? And, gee, there's some really interesting stuff happening in this space. So I, I think you know, most of them are well on top of this stuff or hopefully they'll come out well on top of this stuff and understanding both the risk and return of being involved in, in carbon farming. Yeah, it's great to hear that they come away with that approach after actually getting to do some hands-on work into it. And I know a lot of the 
the pushback and the barriers to starting up these sorts of programs at a farm level is that there's not enough easy to access information out there on how to go about these things and it's it just gets too hard in the end so yeah these sorts of projects that hopefully help make these sorts of things easier and and make it more profitable and financial to implement these sorts of programs and see progress made that way yeah and i think you know you, you hit the nail on the head there is that measurability and auditability, if that's a word, auditing. So measurability is really hard. Some of the modelling is okay, but the modelling still doesn't take into consideration a mixed farming operation. Okay, so that makes it difficult. Now, I know that people are working, well, working with a group at the moment who are, uh, are doing, trying to create mixed models. So we can actually measure it correctly to start off with. So one of the interesting things is just to start off with. Now, I know now from all these people doing the work that I, our farm produces around about 13, uh, 13 I think it was 1,300 tonnes of uh, carbon equivalents a year, okay? So that's a start. And, and you can go onto the CSIRO, what's called look model, L, spelled L-O-O-C, and you can just do that. Um, I think it was, or well, there's a couple of others anyway. MLA's got some calculators. Look tells you what forestry you would need to plant to actually uh, offset that or how much you need to offset it. So... It's getting there, but it's still, and, and you know, the stuff around carbon, uh, soil carbon is really, I, I, I still question at this stage. Again, we just need more science and more credibility around that. But having said that, we've got stuff like, was it asparagosis um, taxiformis or whatever it is, which is red seaweed? Now, the research on that is brilliant. Now, it's saying that, that potentially, I've seen uh, research up to 90% reduction in cattle. Well, if that's the case, I don't need to change anything and I've got a 90% reduction. And the interesting thing I know, because I tweeted the guys, that the, 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 the research was originally done on sheep and they say, and his tweet back was actually, it was more effective. Okay. So if that's the case, you know, we might be uh, in a couple of years time, you know, and it has no effect on productivity. In fact, it might improve it. There's some fantastic social and, and economic benefits we're going to get out of, and I think it's something like it has to be no more than 0.05% or 0.5% of your of your diet to make a significant difference. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Become carbon neutral yourself. I'll be carbon neutral just for you so know, you know, and again, so I think we'll we'll have some pretty clever technical solutions to this issues pretty quickly. Now, if that's the case, and this suddenly becomes redundant, but the animal welfare issues and the dietary issues do not. Okay, so that's why I'm not saying this is something that we shouldn't be concerned. About. Yes, it is, but of the issues, I think that's affecting consumer demand long term. I'm not certain that that's going to be the big player, and and the social license issues. I, yeah. I I'm more concerned about animal welfare. Yeah, if we can get some really practical ways, and you know, easy ways like the the seaweed solution, if that becomes you know, an easily accessible option, then there can be some really quick wins made in the future. And I think we've got to be careful around, you know, it's not a silver bullet, just like COVID vaccines aren't a silver bullet. Um, but what we've got to be careful of is that, you know, there are multiple ways that we we as, as producers can actually deal with this and make money out of it, I think. I mean, that's maybe on half glass full. But uh, certainly I think... I'm, I, I, 
to be fair, I think there'll be some areas which which will it, it'll be harder for them just because of, of, of the area land and that they're dealing with, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But for most producers, I'm pretty positive about what the, the climate debate has for us and that we can actually be a positive contributor to it and that we've got a lot to offer. And I don't think it's something that we want to be scared of. I think you're right. I think there is a lot to offer, especially in the the red meat space. And hopefully this discussion that's being had at the moment gets some real momentum going. And yeah, we see we see things moving along ahead there. So thank you so much for coming on today, David. Really enjoyed the discussion. And I'm sure our listeners will have got lots of insight and information out of it as well. So thank you for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. And as I say, this is an ongoing debate. I think it's important that we listen to what people have to say. But I also think it's important that we listen to the society that we live in, um, because we can't ignore where society's going, but we can contribute to it and inform them and educate them. And the more, especially farmers can do that, the more more credibility we have out there in the, in the, in the population. So keep podcasting, keep <laughs> tweeting. And keep going on social media to all you farmers. <laughs> well said. You heard it from David Cordish. Cheers, <laughs> <laughs> guys. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Commodity Conversations. Today's episode was brought to you by Pro Advice Accounting Services. Thank you, David and Olivia, for the chat. And if you liked the episode, please share it around with your family and friends. Until next time, from the team at Mercado, we hope you have a good week and tune in next week for another episode of Commodity Conversations. Thank you.